Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's another Pledge Drive special edition of the program. And my special guest for the hour is Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. And we're going to reach into the archives for parts of uh, some of our favorite episodes of the program. We'll hear from Evelyn Funda, Associate Dean of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and author of Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. Evelyn Funda will tell us the gripping story of her mother's escape from communist Czechoslovakia. Then we'll hear part of my conversation with Colin Dickey, author of the forthcoming book, The Unidentified. We'll talk about conspiracy theories. And finally, we'll hear from Access Utah listeners about their love for books and libraries from a, an episode on the future of libraries. And we're going to invite you to pledge your support to UPR to ensure that Access Utah continues to come to you uh, day in and uh, day out. And the, the place to uh, support us is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org. And uh, for this hour, we have an ongoing, uh, all day, we have the Icon Health and Fitness uh, Challenge. And uh, for this hour... Our goal is $250, so we want to match up to and and beyond, if we can, $250 during this hour. Uh, Ken Sanders, uh, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to help us to uh, to raise some money for the station here. Um, you, um, I think you, you're a supporter of uh, public radio and uh, the things we try to do here and especially we're focusing on books today we do a lot of book interviews and of course you're a you're a bookseller i want to ask you a little bit about i'm not sure if i've asked you this uh before how did you how did you get into to, to books this from childhood i guess you were an avid reader as a kid <laughs> you would guess right <laughs> uh, i it, it just came naturally it came through through reading reading got me hooked and I in grade school, I tried you know nickels and dimes together to get those scholastic book book month the weekly readers and the monthly book shipments. Uh, I, I my whole childhood is financed on soda pop deposit bottles <laughs> to get those nickels and dimes to be able to buy those books because they cost a quarter apiece. Yeah, like the like the shy Stegosaurus of Cricket Creek that probably most <laughs> people haven't heard of, but I bet by now everyone's heard of the. Yes, yes. The movie, that was one of those two books, certainly stand out in my, my early, early childhood. Mm. I've always been an avid reader, and I guess I started wheeling and dealing books just to get more copies to read. Yeah, yeah, into books, so that's, uh, that's a good profession to get into. Of course, you, uh, you co-owned and ran Cosmic Airplane Bookstore in the, in the 70s. Um, yeah, it was an old uh, 60s hippie head shop that uh, my I turned into a bookstore with the help of my my two partners, and it took off and became a pretty wild place. We had records and jewelry and books, and of course the head shop. Uh, but it was a great, great, great time to be in the book business. Uh, most of the bookstores from that era are, are gone now. And yeah. Cosmic. And now Ken Sanders Rare Books, and it, it's quite the experience to go into your your shop, and it's that, that's part of it, isn't it? It's you 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 love the books, of course, as a person who shops for books, but to to go into a place like Ken Sanders Rare Books, associate with other book lovers, I guess that's part of the whole experience. Sure, people treat the bookstore like a museum. Uh, also, people daily comment on the smell of the store in a good way, mind you. But what they have to understand that smell is decom. Paper and books. Ah, that's the smell everybody's addicted to. 
Right. Well, that's interesting twist on it. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, Ken Sanders, later in the program, we'll hear from our listeners. I just chose a segment. We we did a uh, a program on the future of libraries and. Uh, uh, you know, is it going to go all digital, or, or libraries still survive in current form? And um, one of the things the the uh, the um, my guest John Palfrey uh, mentioned there was, uh, or it might have been a listener, said that the, what they liked was uh, the smells, you know, the, it, which included uh, sweat from the other <laughs> the other patrons of the library. <laughs> well, now we're getting to the kinky side of it. Right, right. Let's just stick. <laughs> decomposing paper, shall we? Let's, yeah, let's, let's stay safe. Let's stay safe, yeah. By the way... Now, I'll, also, we may not be able to do it this, this segment, but we have to pay homage to a one-time uh, short-term resident of Logan, Utah, who is celebrating... Well, he's not, since he's dead and 90 years old, but Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Oh, oh, wonderful, wonderful. 50th anniversary, yes. Yes, let's definitely pay homage. Um, and you you knew Edward Abbey. I did, I did, and we'll maybe in the next segment. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. Focus yeah. on that and yeah. his uh, Logan ties. Yeah, okay, I'm making myself a note. Let's definitely talk about that. Um, and you, you're uh, later in the program, you're going to, I think you're, you're going to read some poems for us. I, I want to. I want to keep it local. Uh, okay. I want to try and get in a quick uh, Ken Brewer and hopefully a Mae Swenson. Great. We've talked about those Great. local poets and, in the past. Uh, yes. But I think it's time to hear from them. Not oh, me. great. Great. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, um, we, uh, of course, the main purpose here is to uh, solicit support uh, from our listeners. from for, well, for UPR and for Access Utah. So yes. this, this is the pledge line, right, Tom? This, so, this is so the pledge line. can I start with 100 bucks? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank Somebody you very much. Somebody will take it down. Okay. And, okay. and I understand your, your pals at Icon Fitness uh, are going to double it. They're going to double that. Long. So there we go. Okay. We're we're about halfway there. 500 500 um, bucks is already 200 bucks. It's already 200 bucks, and that's a great example. Right. And uh, Ken hey, Sanders, Ken Sanders has has kicked us off here. Won't you join your support with Ken's um, at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. Well, we'll jump into the first segment here, Ken, and we'll uh, talk to you again uh, after this segment. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we are going to hear next from Evelyn Funda. She's a wonderful writer um, and a longtime professor at uh, Utah State University. Now she's serving as associate dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, a couple of years back, she uh, published uh, a, a wonderful book called Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. It's about her uh, family, her family's land in Idaho, uh, the loss when when they, when they sold the, the farm, and uh, how this all fits into... Uh, how our own imagination as Americans is fired by farming and by the land. And in this segment, we are going to hear a gripping story of her mother's escape from communist Czechoslovakia. Here, let's hear now a, a portion of my conversation from 2013 with Evelyn Funda. That there is that sort of sense of of regret in a way that other places couldn't be this place. Um, I, for instance, I call the the book weeds because I think of weeds as this kind of thing that is never wanted where it's at. I mean, Emerson said that the weeds are just unappreciated wherever they are. And that always sort of reminds me of a of a promise that, okay, if not here, then maybe somewhere else you can set down roots and have a sense of permanence. Hmm. 
And uh, each chapter is is titled after a different kind of weed. Mm-hmm. For example, Wild Oats for your mother. Right, right. Um, maybe uh, this would be a good place for you to read a, a passage, which uh, is introduction to your mother and her introduction to Idaho. And then we talk a bit about your, your mother, who has this extraordinary story, as I referenced earlier, who escaped from communist Czechoslovakia. Yeah, um, let me sort of set up the passage that I thought I would read. Um, this is a story about my parents' courtship. And as background, um, my mother had actually been raised in a little tiny rural village in southern Czechoslovakia. And she was forced to escape the communist-held country in 1951. And she had to leave without a word to her family. Um, And she lived in Munich for a while. And then by 1955, she'd immigrated to New York City. And through a network of Czech immigrants, she began a correspondence with my father, who invited her out to Idaho. And that's where I'll begin. Mm -hmm. In August of 1956, she shipped all her belongings via railroad to Idaho, posted in care of my grandfather. Two days later, she boarded a United flight at LaGuardia that took her to Chicago, and then that same afternoon on to Boise. Apparently, however, my father was not there at the airport to greet her. This I infer from dates in one of his John Deere pocket ledgers where he kept records of custom farm work that he did, the wages owed to the hired men, the cost of barrels of grease, the hours that he worked on the combine, etc. When I originally found the ledger in a drawer after their deaths, I set it aside in a keep pile only because it contained my father's precise handwriting and because the names of the farmers in the ledger reminded me of the faces of people I'd once known. Witzel, Fulgham, Blazer Brothers, Dover. It was much later, however, when I took, a no- c- took note of the title that he had penciled onto the worn cover, Combining, 1956. This ledger then documented the custom farm work he did the summer my mother came to live in Idaho, and I'd like to believe that he kept this particular logbook, not others, to remind him of the summer days that had brought Tony to Idaho. According to his ledger, by the end of July, he was logging 11, 12, and 13-hour days on the combine, moving from farm to farm. Every day during the first three weeks of August, save one, the log shows 12 hours of work or more. August 16th, the day of my mother's arrival, shows only 11 hours, but the next day he worked 13 hours and 12 days the day after that. With grain in the fields, there was little time for romance. Only August 19th, the Sunday after Tony's arrival, is blank, presumably because he had uncharacteristically taken a day off during the harvest to get to know this woman with whom he had only exchanged a few letters. I've heard they took a drive north along the twisting riverside road up to Cascade Lake so that he could show her the place that he'd referenced in his Easter letters. Along with my grandparents and my dad's brother and sister-in-law, they drove up the canyon for a picnic at Donley, where the family leased additional farmland. My aunt from Portland tells me that she heard from her parents that the couple was tense and silent during the drive. Everyone watched and presumed an argument, but on the way home, she reports, they were talking again and everyone was relieved they had made up. But this information comes to me third-hand, a story half-remembered and told more than 40 years later by someone who wasn't even there. My father's log does not reveal any such emotional complexities. It shows only that once again on the following Monday, the 20th, he logged 12 hours on the combine. It must have been inconsolably lonely for her. 
But by then, I suppose, Tony, the refugee, was accustomed to loneliness, practically saw it as a companion in itself. When my grandparents brought out lunches to Dad and the hired man, she might have ridden in the back of the old Ford truck, of the old fork truck, bouncing in the back seat over rough fields next to a hamper full of salami sandwiches and a thermos of black coffee. She might have delighted in the warm, sensual aroma of the grain harvest, recognizing it as one from her childhood. I picture her raising her hand to shade her eyes from the glaring sun so she could better watch Lemire guide the big combine around the cornfields. How much could she foresee about how their lives and ultimately their deaths would mesh as she sat next to him in the shade of the combine, watching as he set his cap back further on his forehead, as he sighed in the heat and propped one elbow up on a bent knee to eat a sandwich? Would she have been attracted to to the deep tan of his forearms. After lunch, she probably joined Lemire's parents in the car, and on the way home, she might have sung along with Doris Day's chart-topping song, Que Sera, Sera, that evocative line, I asked my sweetheart, what lies ahead? Hmm. So this wouldn't have been all that unusual in the way your parents got together. Yeah, there, there were a lot of uh, and it's correspondence, just ex- mail yeah, order, bribe just extraordinary kind of to us now. But uh, yeah, and this was 1956. I mean, we think of correspondence, the the mail order bride, as a sort of a late 19th century phenomenon. But this was mid 20th century. So they didn't know each other that long before they. Uh, no, and it's it's kind of an odd story because the letters don't actually show the ones that I still have don't actually show my father inviting her out Mm. but the fact that she packed up all of her belongings suggests that you know there was going to be a sense of permanence here and whether or not he proposed marriage in one of these letters or um, just suggested that this would be a good place for her to come I don't know yeah I'd like to hear a little bit more about your your mother's story this is just extraordinary she uh, of course um, suffers through you know, the Nazi Europe, and then the people are thinking, well, the communists come in, they're exactly. going to be the saviors, and it turns out they're just as bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, by chance, she happens to be c- come connected with a family who uh, is, is part of the underground, getting people out. Yeah, she um, takes a job as a nanny and sort of co- nurse companion to a woman named Frances Pescar, and Frances's husband was Josef Pescar, um, who was a journalist in Moravia. And that was the that's what everyone knew. But what people didn't know was that he was also a sort of leader of an underground resistance group in Moravia that helped Czech immigrants, Czech people escape the, the communist um, regime. And that was because Moravia, the, the village that where they were living, was only 20 kilometers from the Austrian border. And so as she's working for them, they confess that, you know, they're they're doing this. And she says, sure, I'll I'll help. And, um, you know, she does a, a number of jobs for them, but I mean, tame stuff like passing documents back and forth. But one of the really compelling stories is this story where she has to, um, she goes walking into a church and in the church, the the secret police are outside. And in the church, this um, is this woman, the secret police have been following. And she's sort of the similar build. And so the, my mother and this woman exchange clothes. And my mother walks out of the church as a decoy. And she walks out. The secret police follow her. And then she um, goes into a place where she stashed some of her own clothes and comes out and is safe. And the woman escapes. Um, 
but that's the kind of thing where I just think, wow, um, my mother, who I always sort of thought of as a June cleaver with kolaches, um, my mother did this. Mm-hmm. And I think you you said elsewhere that you, you admire your mother's courage and, and kind of compare yourself uh, not so favorably to, to her, her. Right, courage. right. I mean, she had a sense of courage, and she was really, really modest about it. I mean, she did not talk about these stories. You had to drag these stories mm-hmm. out of her. Um, but she was really courageous in a way. I mean, the I, even the act of coming to Idaho, even this idea of leaving behind her family, she wasn't able to say goodbye to anyone when she left, leaving them behind and living um, in Munich and then in New York and then what seems to me on a lark coming out to Idaho, um, that, that takes something. That mm-hmm. really takes some fortitude. Mm-hmm. So she really was smuggled out of, Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. in the false bottom of a wine barrel? Yes. She and Francis, um, Josef had moved to Munich, had es- escaped earlier, and he was started working for Radio for Europe. And through his connections, he then got them through, a couple years later, got them through the border as well um, by creating this... Um, this passage through the uh, across the Austrian border under the false bottoms of wine barrels, and then they were accompanied by armed guards for three days through the various, you know, the American frontier, as it's called in in Czechoslovakia, um, or in Austria, and then on into Germany, where they lived for three years. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we heard there from Evelyn Funda author of the wonderful book Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament, a gripping tale of her of her mother's, a very interesting tale of uh, how her mother and father met, uh, the mother coming sort of sight unseen out to Idaho, and uh, marries her father, and uh, the rest is history. There's much else in this book. Um, Evelyn Funda connects all her personal history up with our larger history of uh, uh, love affair with the idea of agriculture and the farm and uh, what's lost when we uh, lose the farm, either personal family situation or or the, the, the family farm uh, kind of dwindling in the, in the national scope. Uh, we are uh, in the pledge drive um, for UPR and uh, we are counting down a uh, wonderful... Uh, listener challenge, a challenge pledge from Icon Health and Fitness. They're doing a dollar-for-dollar dollar match all day, up to $2,500. Our goal for this program, this hour, is $250, and uh, we're already partway there. Uh, Ken Sanders, who will join us again following the break from Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City, he's kicked in the first $100, and so his money is doubled to $200. You can uh, do the same. You don't have to do $100. Whatever you do is doubled by Icon Health and Fitness. And we'd love to see your pledge of support to UPR in support of Access Utah. Here's how you do it. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Or upr.org. upr.org. And today is Double Down on History Day. Um, our very first pledge drive was in 1982. The goal was $5,000 and we raised uh, just a little in excess of $5,000. That was a 10-day drive. <laughs> We're, uh, hopefully times are better. We're trying to reach that in one day today. That'll help us toward our overall goal for the drive 
Um, so we're uh, we're trying to double down that to get to ten thousand for the day, and every bit helps. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Let's take a break. We'll come back more with Ken Sanders, and then we'll be hearing from author Colin Dickey. He has a book coming out called The Unidentified. It's about conspiracy theories. We'll talk about conspiracy theories following the break. The following segment contains language that may be objective to some of our listeners. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, it's a uh, special pledge drive edition of the program, and uh, we're looking for your support for Access U Top. This is the program you especially tune in for. I, I hope it is. <laughs> Take that personally, and I really uh, love it uh, when I hear that that's the case. Uh, or it might be, uh, hey, I, I want some adjustments to the program. Love to get those as well. Um, we would uh, we'd like to have your engagement. Um, and uh, right now, financially, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. We're moving toward our goal for this hour of $250. We've chosen that specifically because that will be doubled. Now we'll, at the end of this, we can get that 250 to be doubled by Icon Health and Fitness to $500, and they have an all-day challenge up to $2,500 today. So, um, And uh, we have uh, back with us Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books, and uh, Ken's done his part. He's kicked in $100. That's been doubled to 200 Thanks for that, Ken. Of course. And uh, won't you add your uh, your support to uh, Ken's at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. I want to get into talking about Edward Abbey. Um, before that, you're you're still you're still appraising books on uh, Antiquities Roadshow. Uh, yeah, it's a, a weird future I never uh, imagined for myself. But yeah, this will be my twelfth or thirteenth season. Uh, doing book and manuscripts uh, appraisals for PBS's show, uh, Antiques Roadshow. It's been quite a journey, an experience. I've learned a lot from it, like how much I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess but it's fun. It's challenging. So, I, and I get to travel all over the country. Yeah. And I guess you never know what people are going to bring in. Uh, you have no way of knowing. Yeah. Now, to be fair, just like a day in my bookstore, most folks... Um, don't really know what they have, and uh, they bring very odd things to the Antiques Roadshow, things that, let's just charitably say, don't have a snowball's chance in hell of actually getting filmed or aired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the downsides is you just, you know, there are prob- there are 5,000-ish free tickets to the show. People bring 10,000-plus items to be appraised in a single day, and... There's only maybe 150 of them that are going to be filmed. Yeah, well, it's a it's a kick uh, to when I tune in and I, I see you there. I think I think hey, that's <laughs> the Salt Lake guy there. Um, so uh, so let's let's go way back to Earth Day 1970. Let's do yes, Cache Valley, Utah. Uh, the great professor Tom Lyons and a student there at the time, uh, Ingrid Eisenstadt. Uh, because of the first Earth Day celebration in 70, decided to invite the barely known but just published in 68 Desert Solitaire author Edward Abbey to speak at uh, the Earth Day doings up there in, in Logan. 
Uh, he came. Uh, he spoke. Uh, he uh, took up probably a, a, a multi-year romance with uh, Ingrid Eisenstadt, who did many, many adventures with him throughout uh, the 70s, leading to her most likely being the character that most inspired his fictional character of Bonnie Abzug in the uh, Monkey Wrench Gang novel itself that was published in 1975. And it also led to his being the first writer-in-residence at the University of Utah here in Salt Lake while he and Ingrid lived in a small apartment uh, back up there in Logan and commuted down here. Mm. That, and that started in, in Logan? It did. Yeah. It did. He was also great friends with our first poet laureate and great also professor up there at uh, USU, uh, Ken Brewer. He and Tom Lyons and Ken, they... I, Pretty sure this before my day, but I was a high school kid myself then. I'm pretty sure they had a poker playing club up oh, there. Really, somewhere. really. <laughs> I, I had a class from Tom Lyon. He was a wonderful teacher. Oh, yeah. He and Ken Brewer were yeah. truly. They were. They were. They're great, great teachers. Yeah. So if we can just get one little, you know, when Ed Abbey was alive, and like I say, he'd be 90 this year, and he's been gone for 29 years this month he never needed anybody to speak for him mm. tom right and he still right. doesn't so right. let let me just read this short piece okay it's from it's from the uh, introduction to the original desert solitaire finally a word of caution do not jump into your automobile next june and rush out to the canyon country hoping to see some of that which i have attempted to evoke in these pages in the first place, you can't see anything from a car. You've got to get out of the goddamn contraption and walk. Better yet, crawl on hands and knees over the sandstone and through the thorn bush and cactus. When traces of blood begin to mark your trail, you'll see something. Maybe. Probably not. In the second place, most of what I write about in this book is already gone or going under fast. This is not a travel guide, but an elegy, a memorial. You're holding a tombstone in your hands, a bloody rock. Don't drop it on your foot. Throw it at something big and glassy. What do you got to lose? That's uh, Edward Abbey. Desert Solitaire. Desert Solitaire. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Ken. Uh, so and we've we've done uh, many episodes on uh, on Edward Abbey. We've uh, had uh, just uh, on Thursday we had uh, my old colleague uh, Lee Austin in, and we had part of his interview with uh, Ken Brewer. We had several poems read. That was uh, very nice to hear from Ken again. Um, and we we talk a lot on this program about uh, Mae Swenson. She's another prominent Logan Logan person. And, uh, absolutely. I mean, she's she's one of uh, America's finest poets. She's one of the most anthologist, anthologized American poets of all time. And it's really good to know that these these fine fine people that came came out of Logan, these incredible writers and poets, are are finally getting their due, especially in their hometowns. Yeah, that wasn't always the case, Tom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, so I think a little later, maybe the next break, uh, you're going to give us some poems. Um, so we'll yes, look, forward, look forward to that. Well, Ken Sanders, Ken Sanders Rare Books, uh, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you being on with us, and uh, thanks so much for your, 
hundred dollar uh, uh, membership to Utah Public Radio. It's supposed to inspire the listeners to send in their pledges. All right, uh, so uh, we we hope it does. Here's the way. Here's the way you can join your support with Ken's eight hundred eight two six one four nine five eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upr dot org upr dot org. Uh, so Ken, uh, we will let you go. We'll bring you back next break. And uh, thanks so much for being with us. See you then, Tom. Okay. Ken Sanders, Ken Sanders Rare Books. Uh, he's going to, next break, he'll read some poems, I believe, from uh, Ken Brewer and uh, Mace Winson. Uh, so, the way to support this kind of programming, and today we're focusing on our book interviews, and uh, boy, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not working, as Lee Austin said on Thursday. This is uh, it's part of the job. I get to, to read some books and talk with the authors and engage. It's, uh, Leah says it's like uh, continuing education, and uh, certainly I feel that way. It's a joy. Hope uh, that you feel that way listening. And uh, here's how to support this programming, 800-826-1495 or upr.org. We're uh, moving toward a goal for this hour of $250, which is really $500. That's because Icon Health and Fitness will match dollar for dollar uh, your pledge. And uh, we hope you'll take advantage of this. The number is 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Up next, a conversation with Colin Dickey. He's a writer, uh, previously of a book called Ghostland, some other books. Uh, He has a forthcoming book called The Unidentified. And uh, in in that, he talks about conspiracy theories. He had a a publication in magazine, and we uh, reached out to him. Um, And he says his thesis was, uh, liberals like to think that conspiracy theorists are all on the right, and uh, the, the right of the political spectrum. He says, in the age of Trump, more and more on the left are subscribing to conspiracy theories. It's a problem that we are all... May it perhaps prone to, and we get to talking about conspiracy theories, the whys, and then how to counteract this. Uh, here is Sparshan by conversation with Colin Dickey. So, Colin Dickey, a key question, and I, I uh, struck upon this: the, the your your coming book is described as uh, treating conspiracy theories and other delusions. That word, delusion, um, it's delusion, self-delusion. I, I guess if you subscribe to a conspiracy theory, that's a loaded word. You wouldn't. You wouldn't use that word, but uh, certainly those who would accuse you of, uh, of falling for a conspiracy theory would would use that word. Right, and again, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a complicated uh, sort of discussion, particularly with regards to the the as I mentioned, the sort of still unfolding uh, news story about about Russia and and you know anything that might have happened. I mean, because you want to be clear that that. Not every uh, conspiracy is is fictitious. I mean, you know, Watergate was a was a conspiracy, a Iran Contra affair. These, you know, these were actual conspiracies that that were brought to light, and uh, you know, people people went to jail over them. And and so when you're when you're talking about conspiracies versus conspiracy theories, I think that it's really important to remember that um, you know. How you come to believe a thing is is in many ways sort of more important than what you actually believe. And so with conspiracy theories, I think what you see again and again is you see someone who feels for, for any number of reasons, either valid or invalid, that they are, are sort of, sort of they've been pushed to the margins. They, they are on the outside and sort of unfairly have been left behind or ignored. And 
and people in, in those situations, not all of them, but some of them respond by um, imagining that, that what has happened to them is, is not um, necessarily the circumstances of, of chance or, or their own misfortune or their own sort of uh, failure, but rather some sort of malevolent secret cabal that is, that is kind of uh, you know, putting their thumb on the scales and sort of dictating things. And, and, and that, in a way, becomes... For a lot of people, it kind of, even though it, you know, it, it sounds very evil and malevolent, it, it actually sort of, you know, paradoxically is, is sort of reassuring because it, 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 it takes some of the chaos and uh, noise out of the world and replaces it with a, with a sense of order, even if that order is, is in fact, kind of evil. And, and you say, according uh, here uh, from your article, that most dangerous, dangerous of all, it can affirm your sense that things are hopeless while absolving you from having to do anything about it. Right, exactly. I mean, if, if you are, you know, say you, you, you voted for Hillary Clinton or you, or you didn't vote for Donald Trump, you didn't like Donald Trump, and, you know, uh, here was a guy who, uh, you know, all of the polls said he was going to lose sort of up until Election Day. You know, he had, you know, maybe a 1% chance of winning. Uh, you know, he, he loses the, the popular vote by, by several million votes. So, you know, clearly uh, there are a lot of Americans who, who, who didn't want to see him elected, and yet, yet he, he gets elected. So, you know, what do you do with that information? You can either sort of face, face that and say, okay, you know, you know we who, who are not, you know, happy with this guy, we have a lot of work to do in terms of, uh, you know, organizing, get out the votes and sort of educating voters and sort of convincing them that, you know, his policies are actually quite bad for people. Uh, you know, that, and that's, that's, a, that's a long, hard slog. It involves a lot of effort, involves a lot of frustration, it, you know. Or you can say, uh, this, the fix was in. You know, uh, you know Donald Trump was, uh, you know, a Manchurian candidate, sort of secretly guided to, to victory by uh, forces who are going to use them for, for their own malevolent purposes. And, and more importantly, uh, the CIA and the FBI know this, and they are, they are one step away from unmasking him and, and uh, putting Hillary Clinton back into the White House or something like that. You know, I mean, whatever, whatever form that takes. But, but you can see how one, one of those responses requires a lot of work, a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment, and the other one sort of treats it all as a spy novel where all you have to do is kind of sit back and, and watch uh, justice unfold. Yeah, you, you uh, go on to say that uh, conspiracy theories reduce the big scary world to a single axis, promising there exists somewhere one hidden fact. So a, a great simplification, which can be reassuring, but as you as you were saying, they're uh, dangerous if you then retire from the from the world and don't engage. Right, exactly. And again, I mean, if you, if you are unhappy with with Trump's victory. Uh, you know, there are a lot of factors that, that went into that, you know, the sort of failure of, of polling agencies to get it right. The, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe Hillary Clinton should have campaigned in Wisconsin more. Uh, you know, maybe she sort of didn't reach out to the right people or, you know, whatever. You know, you can list a number of different reasons, all of which probably had some small part to play, some larger than others. Or you can say, you know, you can pick one single identifying factor, and that is the, the overwhelming reason why things happen the way they are and that's that's just sort of simpler to manage you know and again i mean i you know i looked at this in the wake of uh, trump's election because you know that's what's going on but you know th this is this is what normally happens on the right as well i mean people in 2009 who who looked at the election of barack obama and said 
you know, he, he's, he's a Kenyan, he's not, he's not an American citizen. I mean, that was a way of uh, sort of taking the messy reality of American politics and American demographics and the changing face of what, what an American was and putting a simple, single narrative on it that, that sort of resolved all those problems and said, you know, Barack Obama is not actually an American. So, so I, you know, I want to be clear, we all do this, or, or at least all sides of the, the political spectrum do this, and, and just because it's, it's happening now in the wake of, of Trump's election doesn't mean that this is somehow uh, singular to, to, to one political spectrum. You know, I want to underscore that. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people have shared this, this sort of uh, smugness on one side of the, the spectrum. You quote uh, Mario Cuomo. Uh, is saying the right, you know, writes their manifesto, as it were, in crayon, and we use a, a quill. Right, exactly, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, whenever, whenever your side is winning, it's very easy for you to sort of smugly dismiss the other side as a bunch of, uh, you know, cranks and weirdos who can't accept defeat. Um, but, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, I mean, this, this, this goes to the heart of, of American... Uh, history and identity, and it goes all the way back to, uh, you know, scaremongering about the Illuminati in the 1800 election. You know, I mean, this, so this is this is a part and parcel of, of who we are as Americans and how we how we face defeat, how we face our own changing demographics, how we face our our involvement in electoral politics, and and it's going to be with us uh, long after Donald Trump is no longer president. So it sounds like a, a good prescription uh, to guard against conspiracy theories and everything related. Uh, a lot of bad things related is is engagement, right? But that's that's getting harder. Increased polarization. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Certainly, there there are some sort of basic things you can do to to guard against uh, you know conspiracy theories. I mean, I you know check you know sort of basic things. Check your news source. You know where. Where is the thing you're reading? Where is it coming from? Is it coming from something shared on Facebook? Is it a legitimate news site? You know, I mean, there's lots of sort of uh, kind of just sort of day-to-day things you can do to kind of uh, guard against uh, falling for, for these, these beliefs. But I think on a more fundamental level, you know, what I, what I try to argue in this piece is that um, uh, a basic thing you can do is ask yourself, you know, why do you want these things to be true? Why, why do you believe these things? And, and, and are, you, are you looking for some sort of factual confirmation that will actually address the psychological need you have rather than looking for, you know, the actual data that the world uh, is giving you? You know, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for something to make you feel better, then you're going to, you know, you run the risk of succumbing to confirmation bias and, and possibly even conspiracy. You know, if you, if you need to feel better about the world, then, you know, there are ways to do that that don't involve, uh, you know, reading the news there. You know, you can, and, and that's kind of what, I, what I'd like to sort of take away from this, is that it's more about why we look for information rather than what the information is. That's writer Colin Dickey. He has a book uh, coming out uh, in the future, and so we're looking to the future on this. It's uh, be called The Unidentified, and in part it's about conspiracy theories. And uh, it's a very timely uh, topic. We were able to talk with Colin Dickey. Uh, that was uh, in 2017, just last year. Um, and uh, indicative of what we try to do, we, we talk to authors, we talk to thinkers, we uh, try to d- delve into uh, deep ideas. We have an hour where we can do that, and so this is an opportunity on public radio to do those kinds of things. Also try to be balanced, 
and uh, Colin Dickey's thesis there was uh, perhaps uncomfortable to uh, some of our listeners, including myself, that uh, maybe the popular conception is, oh, conspiracy theories are a province of the right of the political spectrum. He's saying, no, it comes and goes, and it, uh, uh, in the age of Trump, uh, you see a rise on the left of conspiracy theories. We all need to guard against it. So it's the kind of thing that we do. Hope that it, that's valuable to you, and uh, here's how to support it. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org. Coming up, uh, an illustration of another very important part of the program, I love listener engagement, especially through email and calls, and uh, so I went to a program on the future of the library from 2016, and I just took a section where we had a couple of emails and a caller talking about their love of books and libraries. That's a wonderful uh, way to engage, and uh, you're supporting that kind of community engagement and togetherness with your pledge to UPR right now, 800-826-1495 or upr.org. More and more with Ken Sanders following this break. Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're hearing the best of Access Utah uh, segments from some of my favorite episodes. And, uh, well, quite frankly, trying to get you to the phone to support the program um, and uh, remind you uh, perhaps why you love the program. If you do, hope you do. 800-826-1495 is the number to call to uh, pledge your support. There are a lot of great thank you gifts. And just ask the volunteer when you call. Or you could go online to upr.org and see those thank you gifts right there. upr.org, 800-826-1495. We have a dollar-for-dollar match through today up to $2,500 with Icon Health and Fitness providing the match. So we thank uh, thank the good folks there. Um, and we are joined once again by Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books. And Ken, uh, great news. We've had uh, good progress here. You kicked us off with $100. Thank you for that. And uh, I think that's got people excited, hopefully. And uh, so we've had a pledge from a listener in Littlefield, Arizona. Didn't want their name on, and that's an option for you. Just uh, tell the volunteer. But thank you. You know who you are from Littlefield. Uh, a caller from Logan called in as well. Thank you to you and our own uh, Kirsten Swanson. Uh, from Logan has called in in support of Access Utah. And so, Ken, we have received $500 in pledges, and that will be doubled to $1,000. So, Ken, thanks for kicking that what off. Was, what was the goal? Uh, well, the goal was 250 so <laughs> we've blown right okay, past well, that. Let's, uh, let's double the 500 let, let's, for crying out. Let's double the let's 500. Every former student of Tom Lyons or Ken Brewer or any other one of the fine us teaching staff at Utah State University. That's got to be a whole slew of people by now. Where that's, are they? That's, they that's right. In and pledging. That's, that's a great goal. Let's double that. So let's, let's get another 500 during this hour. That would show great support for Access Utah. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for kicking that, and we'll double that goal. Uh, so call now, 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Remember, your money's doubled by Icon Health and Fitness. So, uh, Ken, uh, you, uh, you, I think you have a couple of poems for us. Yeah, so, so, so background first, Tom. I mean, you know, we're, we're living in very, very odd times. Uh, uh, we, 
the only way to, to, to take back our country from the burnt orange heresy is we got to do it in local communities, and we need leaders, and that includes writers and poets and activists, and I think our, our very own local people in Cache Valley, a.k.a. the poets Ken Brewer and Mae West, they need to inspire this current generation and the future generations of, of activists. To, to Did you ever see Michael Endy's, read Michael Endy's novel, The Never-Ending Story, or or see the movie? Uh, no, I, I miss both of those. It, it, it's about the great nothing that's taking over the edges of our country, and it's like this big, huge, nasty, acidic fog that's just eating away at everything and turning us into this horrible morass, the swamp of despair, and it's up to us to take it back, and that's what that whole movie is about. And Mace Winston and Ken Brewer and people like that, they spoke, and Ed Abbey, they spoke the truth to power. Ken's Intro. It, uh, do you know his his last volume of books, the poetry whale song? Yeah, I'm I'm a little familiar with it. Yes. Yeah, I mean these are the poems he wrote and shared with his family and friends as he lay dying of pancreatic cancer. There, I know it sounds gruesome, but they're very hopeful. He says at the very end of the introduction of this book, I keep hearing that poetry is dead in this country, but I refuse to believe that. When we must confront immediate crises, we seldom write novels or short stories. We write poems or we sing or we pray. Upon being told my life was about to end, I wrote the first poem as if it were a boat of words launched towards places I have never been. He wrote these poems in chronological order as he got sicker and sicker. Here's the first one. Questions for my oncologist. What's the rhythm of death? Iambic pentameter or alexandrines with very, very longest syllables? Or the word death with its TH pressed against the roof of a coffin? Or fire that burns to ash? and flutters from a plane, a cliff, a ship, a waterfall. What does a dead poet write if not free verse? What about the fear of abstractions? Closed or open form? Tradition? Cutting edge? Well, too late for that, perhaps. What about audience? Publishing? S-A-S-E? What about handwritten manuscripts? And starting with and and ending with a question. Mm. Ken Brewer, yeah. Whale Song. Do we have time for one more short uh, uh, one? Um, let's see. We, we've got about uh, uh, two or three minutes total. Yeah, this is a short one. Okay. Just to give you an idea of the progression. The visit. Death sits on the side of my bed, skirt hiked to hairline, says... Hi, handsome. Want to dance with me? Uh, hmm. Sorry about that. I lost my glasses. It's hard reading okay. poetry with the phone in your hand. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, hi, handsome. Dance with me? No thanks, I say. Not yet. I'm just a man with pancreatic cancer, not a corpse. Besides, I'm married. Death stands and straightens his skirt. 
I'll be back, marriage or not. Then he stumbles on his high-heeled shoes. Careful, I say, you'll kill yourself trying to walk like that. But the room, empty, squinches up like cheap perfume. Left alone, I admit I could become Mr. Bones and do that old soft-shoe shuffle, tap, shuffle. My father did that at the end, bones in my arms as I carried him to the car for Indianapolis and the big VA hospital where he saw death getting out of a cab. Nice legs, babe. You want to dance? And did. Hmm. Ken Brewer. Ken Brewer. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful poet. Uh, let's see, we have about a minute left. Uh, I don't know if you have anything that short. Uh uh, the the Mace Winston one's too oh, long. Oh, I, too long. Okay, we'll we'll have to I get. I can't squeeze it. Okay, another we'll, time. We'll get that another time. Well, uh, Ken Sanders, as always, been a pleasure to to have you on with us. Uh, thank you for having me on, and let's let's raise some more money so you can stay on the air and continue to invite guests and hear local points of views. It's it's up to us. We've got we have to. If we want what we want, then maybe we don't always agree on that, but we have to take local control of things we have because the nationals are making no sense. It ain't about being a Republican or a Democrat. It's about we all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. We all count on the same earth in order to continue to live. So let's throw the greed aside for a change and get together on things. And instead of selling everything out and consuming everything up, let's make better choices. Let's elect better politicians that on a local level will lead to a national level and will give us back our planet. Let's make the first Earth Day in 1970 count for something. Let's make Wallace Stegner's 1964 Code of the Wilderness letter that inspired the first Wilderness Act. Let's make it mean something. Let's make the lives of Ken Brewer and Mae Swenson and Ed Abbey and all the rest count for something. Well, uh, uh, well said. Uh, Thank you, uh, Ken Sanders. Appreciate it very much. You're welcome. And uh, you can uh, join your pledge with Ken's and many others who have called this hour at 800-826-1495. Or go to upr.org. We'll hear from our listeners on libraries and books on tomorrow's program. That will be coming up. Thanks for listening today.